You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Robert Wright. Fourteen years ago, I co-founded Blogging Heads TV, which produces the podcast you're about to hear. And I'd like to ask you for some help. Blogging Heads is an independent podcast network that presents a diversity of views, including some that are well outside the mainstream, and provides a place for civil discussion between people who disagree with each other. We think this is very important at a time when political polarization is a famously big problem, and a lot of podcasts, with all due respect, sound like ideological echo chambers. If you want to help support our mission, you can make a donation by going to patreon.com slash nonzerofoundation. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash N-O-N-Z-E-R-O Foundation. The Non-Zero Foundation is the nonprofit I run that operates Blogging Heads TV and also operates Meaning of Life TV and puts out the Non-Zero newsletter. And by the way, you can get that newsletter for free by going to nonzero.org and subscribing. Now, if you don't feel like supporting our endeavors financially, we of course encourage other forms of support like rating and reviewing our podcasts on iTunes or on the podcast app of your choice, or standing on street corners singing our praises, or whatever. In any event, thanks for listening. Hello, Hello. Blogging Heads Nation. Uh, It is Dresbert, and coming to you from the home of the world champion Washington Nationals, I'm Heather Hurlbert of New America and New York Magazine. Uh, and hello from Boston, home of last year's World Series champions. I am very happy to pass the baton on to uh, the Washington Nationals. They they certainly earned it. Uh, I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and I'm also the author of Spoiler Alerts for the Washington Post. And Dan, aren't you going to ask me about my hat? You know, I was going to ask you about that hat, Heather. Gosh, Heather, that does not look like a Washington Nationals hat. In fact, that looks like an old Montreal Expos hat. It's funny you mention that, Dan, and I come by my interest in international affairs, honestly, um, as an impressionable child, the closest city to where my family was living when my parents decided that we were old enough to be exposed to baseball was Montreal. And so according to the archival researches of my sister, Holly Hurlbert, um, professor at North Carolina State, this hat and our fandom of the formerly Canadian Montreal Expos, now American Washington Nationals, did I mention world champion Washington Nationals, dates to approximately 1976 or 1977. Well, I have to say for those, you know, who used to haunt Stade Olympique and, you know, still feel some residual fandom for the the Washington Nationals, ne Montreal Expos, um, I hope you're enjoying and reveling in today's you know, World Series championship, given that they did it in the most difficult way possible, which is to say they won all four games on the road uh, and did not win any games at home, which I, I that has to be the first time that has ever happened. I believe it is. And it is. It shows you that they really are still the Expos, given that the Expos previous um, brush with the playoffs was being in the lead the year that the season was cut short by a yes. work stoppage. 
That is correct. And also, I have to say again, get, you know, and I mean this in all seriousness as a, as a baseball fan, I am intimately familiar with all of the Washington Nationals playoff horrors from this decade. I would like to think that this was a nice ritual exorcism. Uh, and furthermore, by the way, put the lie to some of, let's say, the New York Times reporting suggesting that Washington is nothing but a town of transients, you know, and a place of no fun and so on and so forth. That as it turns out, actually, this is one of the rare things that brings bipartisan joy in, in the city. It really does. Although I have to say the the uh, the episode of the booing of the president during a uh, game, whatever that was, was also um, a, to me a, a high point in my in my World Series watching. And I'm going to say because it will be relevant later in our conversations that um, I was deliberately raised a Red Sox and Expos fan by a, a parent who had grown up himself a Red Sox fan and felt that there was important um, spine and character building to be had in, in rooting for consistently losing teams. Um, and I can testify as a first-person witness, this is not based on hearsay testimony, but rather direct testimony, that I have seen Heather root for the Red Sox at Fenway Park. One of the things I do really worry, though, is that I have raised my kid all wrong because um, neither the Nationals nor the Red Sox have lost enough during his childhood. Plus, now this is the part where I confess the really family deep, deep, dark secrets. His father is a Yankees fan. Yes. Which, by the way, made that time we watched that game all the much sweeter. But um, so if it makes you feel any better, my my uh, I occasionally worried about this. As it turns out, my son has come about his pain naturally because although he was a Red Sox fan when he was a really small child, as he has grown up, uh, he has defected. He is not a Yankees fan. He is a New York Mets fan. So, yeah. Oh, he's, Dan. Oh, I Dan. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. I, I, I think of it as character building for him. And, you know, I've been impressed by his loyalty to his newfound team. And, and when the Mets do win a World Series again, you know, it will be sweet for him. And I think he will. It, it's been truly character building for him. So I'm very proud of him, actually. Where does your daughter fall in the baseball sweepstakes? Or does, is she wise enough to eschew the time wasting altogether? I would say it would, she falls into the indifferent category. So, yes, it, it, she's not really into sports per se. There has to there has to be somebody in the family. And speaking of there being other things in the world besides sports, Dan, um, you said you wanted to discuss a couple of recent news items. Uh, yes, yes. So. Um, how to put this gently? Um, it has not been a good month for U.S. foreign policy. I think it would be safe to say. Um, and uh, I, you know, writing for spoiler alerts, I, I I wanted to focus in particular on what is really not the most important thing that happened over the last month, but I honestly think the most revealing. Um, and this involves the uh, the family of uh, British national. I want to say Casey Dunn. Is that correct? Dunn is definitely correct. Yeah, Dunn is cor- definitely correct. I'm not sure about the last name. Um, hold Who on. was struck and killed while riding his motorbike by an American um, um, spouse, spouse yeah. of an official American abroad who was uh, driving on the wrong side of the road, as uh, one can do in England if one is not paying attention. Right, which I believe Donald – I have to say this, this was uh, – I think Donald Trump, in trying to offer some sympathy for Sarkola, said, you know – this could happen in the UK. I'm not saying that I did it, but I did it, or something to that effect. It was it was a it was a typically bizarre Trumpian response. So anyway, this woman clearly killed this man, um, and after initial questioning, I believe by British authorities, fled to the fled the jurisdiction, came to the United States. At which point, the United States gave, you know declared that she had diplomatic immunity as the wife of a U.S. diplomat. 
which while technically could be done is a rather odd thing to do in this particular instance because the crime in question is criminal rather than political in nature. Um, and it's not like the British have a ineffective or weak rule of law on these matters. So as an ally, you would have expected that to be resolved. Nonetheless, the, the parents of the Duns came to Washington to sort of drum up support for the idea of, I assume, extraditing Sir Carlos uh, back to uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, when arriving here, they got an urgent message apparently from Robert O'Brien, who was the U.S. National Security Advisor, succeeding John Bolton, saying that the president would like to meet with them. You know, I can sort of understand why that would be the case. Uh, they are escorted into the Oval Office, apparently. Trump meets them, tries to console them, and then breaks the news to them that, in fact, Sarkolis is in the next room. And that if it was okay with them, he would open the door and she would come in and perhaps they would reconcile right then and there in front of Donald Trump and, oh, by the way, White House photographers. Um, which, so anyway, uh, I'll, I'll say what this signifies in a second, but, you know, needless to say, um, that did not happen. Uh, the Dunn family uh, rejected it. Um, and then their their spokesperson issued a statement, which I'm, I'm just going to read because I want to get this accurate. It struck us that the meeting that this meeting was hastily arranged by nincompoops on the run. And in particular, Mr. O'Brien, who appeared to be extremely uptight and aggressive and did not come across at all well in this meeting, which required careful handling and sensitivity. Um, so not the most important element of foreign policy by far this month. And in fact, I think it was like a half day news story because more Ukraine stuff came out. But what I find genuinely appalling about this are two things. First, Donald Trump's complete failure to understand human emotion as we know it, um, because clearly he thought this was going to be a made-for-TV moment in which, by surprising this family, he would somehow generate some emotional reconciliation along the lines of a reality show, uh, which is the one thing that he knows about. And second, that Robert O'Brien, who was our national security advisor, at least did not protest or thought this was a good enough idea to go through with it. Um, and so this is of a piece with some of the ar other arguments we've seen over the last, you know, two or three months, which suggests that whatever guardrails existed in terms of checking Donald Trump when it comes to foreign policy um, have essentially, you know, withered away that, that, you know, Trump's primary foreign policy surrogates at this point, folks like Mike Pompeo. Pompeo, Robert O'Brien, Larry Kudlow, I suppose, uh, Stephen Mnuchin are essentially yes men. And so as a result, in some ways, it, it echoes something that John Kelly apparently said uh, last weekend, which was that um, he regrets having left the White House because he warned Trump that if Trump only appointed yes men in, in positions like his, such as Mick Mulvaney, uh, he was pretty much guaranteed to be impeached. So. The first thing that I want to say about this is when I read about the whole thing, my my first instinct was to to go find a basilica and go up it on my knees in an act of penance because this is just such an appalling thing. And yep. it's a small appalling thing. And in some ways, it's a small visible example with a white person of what the U.S. did on a much larger scale with two both Kurdish fighters and civilians in northeast Syria who had been led to believe that for some indefinite amount of time they could count on U.S. protection to go about their lives. Mm -hmm. So, so yes, um, to your point, it's, it's exemplary in a way that one can easily relate to of a million things that it's much harder to relate to but that have – 
catastrophic and fatal impacts on on people and communities around the world, which we just brush off. And the catalog of horrors is so long that it's it's kind of terrible that it takes this case involving one particular person that one can relate to 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 expand outward just the catastrophe of not just I mean, as we know, presidents from both parties can make really bad foreign policy decisions that result in really bad outcomes, but not just making bad policy, but doing it cavalierly and in a way that's totally detached from, as you say, the realities of humans and how their emotions work and how they behave is 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 repulsive. Um, and yes. I think you you have tried to make the point or you have a hopeful vision that you have put forward suggests that maybe impeachment will actually force the president to to stop trying to create made for TV moments with grieving parents or made for TV moments with Turkey and focus on fighting impeachment. But I think there's a counter argument made uh, most vividly by by Jeremy Shapiro of the European Council on Foreign Affairs, who wrote a, a wonderfully snarky piece um, saying sort of here are the five worst things the Trump administration has done in foreign policy. And oh, by the way, they were all done in the last month. <laughs> So I'm, so I'm I'm concerned that in fact we've sort of entered the I mean I don't even know the jumping the shark phase the sort of after they sell the rights to the sequel to a different set of producers and the Game of Thrones producers come in and oh never mind um you know, just, we've reached the bad stage we've reached the bad place yes um so so here's what I would say so first of all my argument. The strategic case I made for impeachment, which I made, I think, in early September, just as this was starting to build up, was that, you know, that that essentially, if you think of Trump as a as a truly malevolent actor, um, you have to pursue what I would call a min max strategy, which means, you know, which is what sort of game theory talks about, which is if you assume you're in a zero sum game with someone else, you know, they're going to take whatever actions they possibly can to mess with you. So your your response is to maximize whatever the minimum payoff is, possible payoff is. Um, essentially, it's sort of an insurance strategy. And the argument I made was that I thought impeachment was better than the other alternatives because the one thing that impeachment would do would be to absorb Trump's time and attention. And first of all, I would say that's by and large held up. I mean, the, the, from all the reporting we've seen, Trump cannot stop talking about the impeachment scandal, uh, regardless of what meeting he's in. So as it turns out, it, it has sucked up an enormous amount of attention. Now, the the problem with this, of course, as you say, is that nonetheless, an awful lot of bad foreign policy has happened over the last two months, the most obvious being what's been done with uh, with Syria. But that's not the only thing, um, you know, the, the case with the Duns, certainly um, the China trade deal, which is not necessarily bad per se, but, you know, there's basically been a deal consummated that makes you wonder why the hell we went through the last two years, um, because as near as I can determine, not much was was achieved and significant costs were incurred. Um, so I'm not going to say that everything has worked out. I would nonetheless maintain two responses. The first is this is still better than the alternatives, because a Trump unchecked is a Trump that would decide, you know what, let's really take some serious action. Let's withdraw the U.S. from the WTO or let's really, you know, refigure out, you know, or question whether or not we want to stay in NATO. And the second thing that I think is going on is that in part, Trump is doing what he's doing, not necessarily as a reaction to impeachment. But as I said, I think it's a reaction to changes in staffing. 
which is much more so um, than in previous years. Part of the reason Trump is doing the things he's doing is because simply no one is in the room telling him no or telling him that this is a bad idea. Or even if they are, he's not listening to them. I thought the most telling thing actually about um, the uh, uh, Alexander Vindman, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, his testimony earlier this week was that in the time story that broke the initial opening statement, I think the story also said that essentially for the last two months, Vindman has been cut out um, of any NSC deliberations on Ukraine, which is basically what his bailiwick is. Um, and so, and you know, replaced by a Devin Nunes staffer. Yes. Don't, yes. Don't oh, leave out oh, that because that was I fun. forgot that. Yes. And that that story, that story, which, by the way, you know, I, I think Fiona Hill had up until this point managed to reserve a fair amount of her dignity um, and reputation based on on, you know, in, in extremely difficult and trying circumstances serving as the senior director. This story did not serve her well, though, in that it turns out that essentially Hill told Vinman. Um, you know, Trump thinks this other guy, Nash, I think is his name, or uh, Nath, I think, you know, that is a Devin Nunez guy, is actually the senior Ukraine person. And it would be awkward uh, for you to also brief the president, which makes no sense whatsoever, if you think about it, you know, even a bit carefully. No, it makes total sense if you have decided that whatever is your breaking point is not that and that you are willing to go along up to that point. And that, you know, just to repeat a theme where I know you and I agree, yeah. that is the problem with the beclownification of serving in the Trump administration, that whatever you decide your breaking point is, what is beneath it is still going to be so terrible. I reference you back to uh, to uh, General Kelly, who is, yeah. you know, so like things have gone to hell since I left. But of course, he's the things were not great when he was there. Absolutely. It's yeah. in cages. Yeah. 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 Um, no. And it, it, it I, I, you know, I remember back in, in late 2016, early 2017, there were debates about whether it was possible to, you know, to serve ethically in the Trump administration, um, particularly as a political appointee. And I think we have to face facts, which is that I, I think there are a few people who have managed to do it and by and large keep their reputations intact that, that have left. But as you say, part of the problem is that whatever you think your red line is going into this, inevitably it gets moved, um, probably because you simply underestimate the ability of Trump to act in a depraved manner. Yes, well, there's that. Um so the positive forward-looking segment of this edition, uh, Dan, was going to be you and I um, each, per, perhaps because our parents raised us to spend too much time on Lost Cause baseball teams, um, you and I have both been spending a lot of time recently in debates around so-called grand strategy, which I think is sort of fancy obscuring words for what should the U.S. do next in the world. And um, we should warn um, viewers that uh, we have sort of informally titled this part of the episode the get off my lawn grand strategy <laughs> um, in that there are you know as I have written um, as, as I wrote in in lawfare earlier this year this is a moment of incredible creativity in American strategic thinking which is really fun and you have lots of people including a much broader spectrum of voices frankly than has ever um, has yeah. ever gotten to have opinions in in 
American grand strategy in the past, opining on sort of the good, the bad, the ugly of what the U.S. has done in the past, what it's doing now, and what it could do in the future. But honestly, the problem is that a whole lot of it is built on assumptions that there's just no evidence will hold up in the future. And so I have been uh, spending a lot of my time the last couple of weeks, and I think Dan is going to be spending a lot of his time in the next few weeks. Um, I, I've got like a good steady business going of being the naysayer on people's grand strategy panels. <laughs> Uh, that is correct. In fact, it, what's interesting, so I've got a chapter in the the Oxford uh, the Oxford University Press is naturally coming out with a handbook on grand strategy. You know, one of those big, you know, uh, ones with like 40 contributors um, in which they basically asked me to be the skunk at the party um, at the end to say that this is not going to happen. Whatever grand strategy notions you have, particularly in the in Western uh, advanced industrialized democracies, um, it's nice that you think that it's not going to happen. Um, and so, yes, I remember your excellent uh, review essay in Lawfare. And, and so let me, first of all, agree with you that one of the paradoxes of the, the Trump administration is by tearing down what had previously been the sort of status quo of liberal internationalism, it really has opened up a relatively fertile debate um, among a variety of, of figures sort of genuinely across the political spectrum. That you, It's not just a debate between – Democratic centrists and and more conservative centrists, but rather, you know, you really have populist nationalists on the right um, or Jacksonians on the right, you know, along with progressives on the left that would adopt, you know, to use Walter Russell Mead's language, a more Jeffersonian approach to this. But really genuinely um, a sort of wide ranging debate about what the proper grand strategy should be for American foreign policy. And I, I have mixed reactions to this because, as you point out, the debate has genuinely opened up. There are people whose voices probably would not have been heard even five years ago in terms of this debate, and they're now being listened to. But like you, the conclusion I have come to um, is that grand strategy is a you know mirage in the desert. It simply can't be uh, – even if you tried to do it, um, you know, for a grand strategy to matter, it's actually got to be durable and relatively long lasting. And essentially, there have been underlying trends in American political economy that have pretty much guaranteed that the likelihood of, let's say, a grand strategy surviving a particular presidency is next to nil. So I'm going to actually, um, in the spirit of U.S. policy toward Taiwan, I'm going to offer a series of no's. Um, And in the hopes that perhaps at some point out of those no's start to come some yeses. But um, the first one I know you and I agree on, which is no, it is not just a messaging problem. Yes. No, it is not the case that someone just needs to message the American people better about leadership. That is that is not it is it is the 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 content or the results and not the box that is the problem. No, I mean, I mean, isn't this like, you know, politics 101? Anytime someone says it's a messaging problem, that actually means it's not a messaging problem. It's probably that the substance of the policy is problematic. <laughs> so number two, and this one is a special for, this was a special for my realist restraint, but also some of my liberal friends. No, if we were nicer to Russia and China, they would not just decide that because we were being nicer, the liberal order was fine. Sorry, but no. No, yeah. it is not the case that if we had been nicer to Russia in the 90s, Russia would have decided it didn't need to compete with Europe. Nope. Yes. Nope. nope. That's correct. Um, the only thing I would – the one mild objection I would make to that is that 
There are ways in which the Russia-China sort of entente is, I think, stronger now than it otherwise would have been had the United States employed a somewhat smarter foreign policy over, let's say, I don't know, the last five years or so. Um, but by and large, I th- I'm not going to disagree with what you're saying. Okay, and then I think maybe I'll wrap it up with a third no, which is for my friends on the conservative internationalist and um, Jacksonian, Trumponian side. No, it is not a goddamn new Cold War. It is not a goddamn new Cold War because our economy and the economic well-being of our communities are totally enmeshed with that of China. And no, sorry, friends on the on the left and right, and you know who you are all across the spectrum, no you can't decouple. When we decouple, we don't take Vietnam and we don't even take Australia with us. So no. Um, yeah. So my, my nose would be a little more meta, which is to say, no, you are not going to be able to devise a grand strategy that will survive the next president. Um, because essentially what has happened is um, – the, the sort of growing degree of polarization and the sort of concentration of foreign policy prerogatives within the executive branch means that it is possible for every new president to essentially do a 180 on whatever the previous president did. Now, it used to be the case that that didn't matter as much because the country was a little less polarized and because most presidents were coming from within the foreign policy mainstream. But as we've seen with Donald Trump, Donald Trump was able to reverse an awful lot of what Barack Obama did, and he was able to do so legally because essentially what Obama had done was primarily through executive action. So if you look at, you know, sort of his big accomplishments in terms of foreign policy, the Iranian nuclear deal, the Paris Climate Change Accords, the opening to Cuba, all of those had minimal, if any, congressional buy-in which made it therefore extremely easy for President Trump to do whatever he wanted in, in, in terms of reversing it. Of course, this also applies to President Trump, because if anyone then comes in and replaces Trump, uh, you know, that person will be able to eliminate tariffs, you know, that have been employed for very dubious uh, national security grounds. Uh, whatever China deal that he thinks he signed and, and might endure, um, since it will be only done through executive action, will be reversed, um, and, and so on and so forth. So, and then that next president, if they try to do something only through executive action without buy-in from Congress, will find that the president after them might change these kinds of things. So, you know, for a grand strategy to matter, you actually have to be convinced that it's going to be enduring. And there is no way that any other country looking at the United States is going to believe that the U.S. can credibly commit at this point. Um, and that matters in terms of trying to articulate these kinds of grand strategies. Um, and that's pretty much my primary no. <laughs> So I have some yeses, um, okay. and this will be fun because we may disagree on the yeses, okay. actually. Oh, but my first yes is that actually the way we do grand strategy is wrong. I mean, as I said earlier, I'm a little bit skeptical that it's actually a thing. I think we can just call it strategy. Um, but we have gotten accustomed in the post-World War II period to thinking that we can do strategy divorced from how we think about what we need to do at home. And if we flip that around and start by saying, okay, what do we need in the 2020s and beyond to revitalize an economy that actually you can get a majority of Americans to believe is going to work for them? Um, I happen to think that means addressing inequality. We might disagree on how much it means addressing inequality, but you've got you, you've got to figure out some way of providing um, income, employment, and dignity streams for people, right? 
So that's going to be a and then once you have a theory of the case on how to do that, then you're going to have a theory of the case on what your international economic policy should look like. So similarly, um, protecting American democracy from both internal and external attacks on it. Um, how does that, you know, how much do you believe that confronting Russia and China and in what ways is confronting Russia and China key to that? Also, how concerned are you about an axis of sort of global far right extremism? And how do you think about that in terms of foreign affairs? Um, third, how, what are you going to do about climate change and, I mean, other um, threats to the U.S. way of life that have a transnational dimension to them. And when you answer those questions, from that, your strategy is going to flow. And that is really painful and awkward for all of us who are used to the idea that our ideas about what we need to do in the world should drive what we need to do at home, and then somebody somewhere else should kind of compensate the people who are losers at home. But we have to – That's that's – that's a great way that a that a, a bipolar or unipolar power can behave, and we can't behave that way anymore. So that just saying, we have to flip the equation, and we're the means. We're not necessarily the driver anymore in the in the foreign policy elite. That's my first yes. Okay, so let me, let me let me let me uh, let me can, let me come up with one where I suspect we will also disagree, which is to say. That even if given your premise, the other yes I will say is that it is still possible that the United States might wind up returning or reverting to liberal internationalism post-2020. Um, and in no small part, because as it turns out, that's what the American public wants, which is if you take a look at public opinion polling and public opinion surveys done by the Chicago Council, by Gallup, by Pew, uh, it doesn't matter what survey you look at. It turns out that, that Donald Trump has managed to do something unintentional, um, but nonetheless successful which he is he has convinced everyone or an awful lot of Americans that his foreign policy ideas are bad. Um, and so as a result, you actually have, according to Gallup, record numbers, a record percentage of Americans now thinking that free trade is a good thing for the American people. Uh, you have you know record amounts in the Chicago Council on Global Affairs survey supporting uh, even U.S. overseas bases, which often used to be one that would, you know, sort of uh, Americans would be thought of as ambivalent and other surveys showing, you know, relatively robust support for things like working multilaterally, support for NAFTA and support for immigration. So as it turns out now, there is a, a variety of possible reasons for why these things have, have ticked up, uh, the most obvious being negative partisanship against Donald Trump. But nonetheless, that's not the only thing that's going on here. And as it turns out, you know, contrary to this belief, you know, circa 2016 that Americans had rebelled against uh, the liberal international order, um, I would argue that as it turns out, Americans by and large embrace the key components of the liberal international order. They don't like the phrase liberal international order because that's one of those abstract things. You know, there was a great CAP uh, uh, report that I think came out earlier this year pointing out that the term meant nothing to ordinary Americans. But when you start talking about the components of it, namely the idea of America being actively engaged in the world, the idea that we will continue to trade, that we will continue to be a, a haven for immigration, and that we will continue to restore, to, you know, or, or you know, strengthen alliances and, and partnerships, Americans are all in favor of that. Um, and so there is an interesting question going forward about whether, I, I think on some, on particularly on the Democrat side, whether they're going to try to articulate ideas at variance with that and how Democrats will react to this. 
So boringly, I agree with you on almost all of that. And I, but I, and, but this gets back, it gets us back to the question of what is the role of messaging as opposed to policy content. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're going to see that's interesting is if a future president can, can put forward policies that seem to work and that connect to that sort of what I'll call a reservoir of internationalism. Um, and if a president can, I actually think that a, there are a number of different sort of sub policy options that could, that could merge a specific president's ideology with that reservoir of, of internationalism. So I think as much as say, uh, a Buttigieg internationalism and a Warren internationalism are rather different, or to us they seem very different. But I think they could be they could be framed to to hook into that same reservoir. And frankly, if they worked, which is to say, if the economy did decently well for a wide variety of people, and if people didn't get embroiled in wars or see their elections get messed with, that would that would um, would have the desired effect and people would say, oh, you know, that Pete Buttigieg is a genius messenger, but it's it actually it doesn't work unless the underlying the underlying policies work. Yeah. So I would say two other things on this one, which immediately follows on what you said. The first, which is I think the sort of key test, if, if there's a change in administration in 2020, in terms of, of looking at what the Democrats are thinking on foreign policy is going to be what their approach is towards the European Union. Because I actually think it, it – first of all, this is easily the, the dumbest element of the Trump administration's foreign policy, which is if you're going to decide you're going to go to war with China or even a trade war with China – if you're simultaneously going to fight a two-front war where you also have a trade war with the European Union, you know, two-front wars tend not to work out very well. And so I, I really do find that to be a, a, a strategic mistake uh, of the highest order. The second thing is, is that even, you know, sort of hardcore progressives like, let's say, Elizabeth Warren, who, you know, want to connect the way that the rest of the world is organized to domestic politics, presumably the most pragmatic way that she can do that is to reach some sort of entente with the European Union, which tends to share America's values with respect to things like reducing inequality, you know, treatment of, of labor and environmental standards, nonetheless, an appreciation of, of markets, um, those kinds of things, with, without claiming that they obviously agree on everything because they don't. Um, one can easily see an instance in which there would be a transatlantic on top, which would then wind up setting a whole bunch of standards um, that countries even like China would have to sort of deal with as opposed to just the U.S. going it alone, where frankly, I don't think U.S. market power now is in and of itself large enough to be able to pursue the same strategy that it pursued 20, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. Well, I'm going to jump in okay. on that first one because I rarely do this, but it's like, and viewers, I promise I didn't tell him to do this. But in fact, I am curating with Washington Monthly a special section in the magazine um, early next year, trying to look at different specific ways that you could work toward exactly that kind of ah. U.S.-EU entente. Because I legit and, this, so this is good. Because everybody thinks that. that that would be a really good idea, and everyone in Western Europe thinks so too. But the devil is, I mean, if there, there's a reason it hasn't happened up to now, yeah. one of which actually is fun to say is that it turns out 
that um, European business is really eager to be able to come to the U.S. and exploit um, um, non-unionized labor in the southern U.S. And European business and Canadian business, too, by the way, are really eager to be able to go places and exploit lax environmental standards and um, clear-cut forests and do all kinds of things that they're not allowed to do at home. Um, and again, they do that because the market allows them to do it. They are neither good nor bad. That is just the way it is. And um, the wideness in views between U.S. industry and European regulators on some of the key aspects of a digital economy. Um, there's also the really fun healthcare economics, which I don't even want to start getting into, but I think you could knock down a government or two in Europe about that in the context of a, of a free trade deal. But just to make the point that what you just said is so ravingly obvious and important and is going to be so very, very difficult. Yes. And that, you know, sort of gets back to my to my nose that I think we're at a at a real risk of of underestimating just how far our Western governments, which are relatively weak, all relatively subject to the kind of polarization and back and forth that you're talking about, and how unprepared they are to mount the kind of common economy challenge that you were just you were just talking about. And it's going to take, you know, real acts of political and economic courage, which um, we have to be honest, have been in notably short supply in the Western world. So that I just want to say one more thing, and I know you had another point and I jumped in the middle, but we are going to have to prioritize and we are just not going to be able to do all the things we want to do. A president who comes in is going to have enormous um, domestic tasks. So, you know, the question you have is, do you want to try to work on these, these trade issues? Do you want to try to work on climate? Um, do you want to try? Do you want to try to get Europe to do more to confront Russia? You, you know, may. Um, then there's the whole question of what the hell do you do about whatever's become of Syria by that point, or migration in the in the Med. You can maybe you can do two of those things. Maybe you can do two. So you've actually reminded me of a third point I wanted to make. But so, <laughs> with the, so thank you. But the second point I would say, which is it, it almost uh, follows on what you said, which is that. I, I think to some extent, future to the extent that we talk about the future of foreign policy or grand strategy, you know, let's face it, uh, foreign policy folks are going to have to talk about climate. Climate change has gone from like the thing you mentioned at the very end saying, oh, yeah, and we should talk about climate change to now being in conversations I have, not just with, you know, folks on the outside of government, but folks in the sort of key organs of power. It becomes one of the top three or four things that that gets mentioned. Um, and having just come from California, by the way, for a, a function where I felt very glad to get out when I did, given that uh, there were going to be power outages even in the South Bay um, due to the the fires in Sonoma County, you know, it, it's going to be harder and harder for foreign policy folks to ignore the the sort of externalities of of climate change, and more importantly and more disturbingly. There has been this convenient fiction whenever we have talked about it, to the extent that there has been discussion about climate change, because usually when you talk about climate change, there are always two things you talk about. There's mitigation and adaptation. Mitigation is reducing greenhouse gas emissions so the worst-case scenarios don't happen. Adaptation is dealing with whatever the effects are of, of the sort of climate change that's baked in. Um, I would say 95 percent of the foreign policy debate about climate change has been about mitigation. And I think very quickly over the next couple of years, you are going to see 95 percent of the debate shift to adaptation. And by the way, adaptation is going to be an ugly debate. Money um, and refugees. Exactly. It's going to it's going to wind up. Let me put this way. 
mitigation is tough because mitigation is about global public goods where everyone's concerned about um, you know, whether others are free riding and, and so on and so forth. And that's always been the convenient GOP response to this. Why should the U.S. do anything if they know that China and India are not going to do anything and so forth? Um, well, the, the politic or the economics of adaptation are in some ways nastier because those are completely excludable, as it turns out, or are more excludable. Um, and the, but the ways you can exclude uh, people from the effects of, of uh, um, climate change are often nasty, such as things like building walls and or, you know, uh, blocking refugees. So that's going to be something that I think, frankly, our tribe, you know, our blob has not talked about all that much and is going to need to talk about more. Um, if I may th- quickly inject there, uh, yeah. Lauren Schulman at Center for New American Security reports that when they put out a volume of essays on grand strategy in the spring, she had real difficulty finding someone to write what is a climate-centered U.S. grand strategy? And I, I do just to say that you are absolutely right. And so all of you um, budding grand strategists, next generation um, Machiavellis and Kissingers out there, um, start writing climate strategies and send them all to Dan for publication. There you go. Um, and what is killing me is that I've forgotten what my new point I wanted to make was. Um, this this shows basically that clearly grand strategy should be left to younger people than me uh, who have brains with slightly better memories. I'm trying to think. You were talking about climate change, but you were talking about something else. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and make another point and see if it sure. comes back to you, um, okay. which is the, just one of the other sort of my real disappointments with the debate that we're currently having is that it's more open than they have been in the past in terms of who in the American scene participates. But and this is uniform across ideologies, they do a terrible job of inquiring what people in other countries perceive about the U.S. and what we can do and what we should do. And that there's just, you'd think the Internet didn't exist and we only had access to analyses by other Americans. Well, it's all fake news, Heather. I mean, we, I think we know. But but yes. But thank you. You did trigger my memory about what the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is – That is what down. over 50 friends do for each other, Dan. That, oh, God. We are so there for each other. Um, but as you said, there's only going to be so much that the United States can do. And, what, and, and in terms of talking about if there is a new president in 2021, what they can do, my mind harkens back to the last time a Democrat was about to take over. And this was in the summer of 2008. Um, and I remember going to a Rusi sum, uh, conference – uh, that was being put uh, together by Anne-Marie Slaughter and Kirk Campbell. And it was, you know, the, the code for it was Democrats are going to be back in power. What are all the amazing things that we can do, one, you know, once we're in back in power, according to the Democrats? And, you know, I was perfectly happy to participate in this. There were others. It wasn't just Democrats that were there. I, I was going to say, so what were you doing there again, since we I pretend, was, we pretend so that you used to be a Republican? I was a Republican then, but I will tell you what I was doing, which is, you know, at conferences like these – and this is a, a petty rant of mine. Whenever there are conferences about the future of foreign policy or the future of grand strategy and so on and so forth, guaranteed, I am asked to come on the economic panel, which is always the very last panel of the conference, at which point at least half the conference attendees have already headed to the airport so they can go back home. So they're not necessarily going to be a pay attention. And the reason I remember this in 2008 was because this, that was true. In this Rusi conference, I was on the last panel. It was the summer of 2008. So I want to say it was July. Um, the, the, the conference room was maybe, you know, it was like 150 people and it was maybe like 70 people in the audience. And I remember sitting on this panel with people from like Morgan Stanley and, you know, a few of the other like, you know, financial houses. 
And I was incredibly gloomy because, again, summer of 2008, um, warning people about things that were going to happen. And I was far and away the most optimistic person on this panel. The Wall Street people were all like, you have no idea what is about to come down the pike. And, of course, the 2008 financial crisis winds up you know, drowning out almost everything that everyone else talked about in that conference. And my genuine fear is that that will occur again come 2021, mostly due to sudden recognitions by Wall Street of, oh, wow, did you realize how high our deficit is? And now there's a Democrat in power. So it will not shock me if you suddenly start seeing interest rates go up in a reaction to a non-Republican being in power. And by interest rates going up, that suddenly puts a tremendous increase on the debt burden that the United States is going to have to deal with going forward because, thanks to Donald Trump, we are now running near trillion-dollar deficits despite the fact that the economy is booming. Well, Dan, I think we've scared all the viewers off our lawn. Do you think we can, do you think we can go back to sitting on the porch now? We can. We can continue to jog each other's memory. This is good. It's productive. You know, it's, it's nice that we're stimulating each other's brains. This is this is very good. Well, thank you, audience. Um, we will be back in future with perhaps more positive things to say about how you two can survive on a couple of cans of tuna and a rock after the coming apocalypse. Um, and the best news we can say is that I believe in something like 110 days pitchers and catchers report. Right. And on that note, um, goodbye from Washington, the home of the world champion Nationals. And goodbye from Boston, home of the previous world champion Boston Red Sox. <laughs>